Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. On the coronavirus front, we had a new study that had some good news for the lingering question about how long immunity lasts after being vaccinated. The mRNA vaccines made by Pfizer and Moderna set off a persistent immune reaction in the body that could protect against the virus for years. The study suggests that most people immunized with the mRNA vaccines might not need booster shots, unless the virus and variants involve too much. For more on this, we'll speak to Apoorva Mondavilli, reporter at the New York Times. We don't really know how long the protection from vaccines lasts. There have been some studies suggesting that after natural infection, immunity to the coronavirus might last a very long time, years and possibly a lifetime, but we didn't know that for vaccination. And it's a bit harder to study for vaccination because you have to be able to look at all kinds of cells and antibodies that fight the virus inside the body. And we just have not been vaccinated for long enough to really have that information. So this study was very cool in that they looked at the source of those immune cells to figure out how actively is the body preparing to fight the virus, because that can give us a sense of how long the immunity lasts. And when they're looking at this, they're looking at the lymph nodes and we're talking about B cells, you know, early throughout the pandemic, as we we're learning through all of this, we we're talking about antibodies, B cells and T cells. But with this study, as I mentioned, uh, we're focusing on B cells and uh, the germinal center that's forming in the lymph, lymph nodes. Help walk us through some of that. Sure. I'm, I'm surprised and delighted that we want to wade through all of that. So what happens after either infection or vaccination is that in the lymph nodes, you get this structure called the germinal center. It's sort of like a training ground, a school for the immune cells and B cells. That's where the B cells sort of become more and more sophisticated. They learn to recognize lots of different variations of the virus, which is a good thing, right? Because the virus is evolving. So just as the virus is evolving, these cells also continue to evolve and they become capable of recognizing a lot of versions of the virus. The longer they have to practice, the better they get. And what this study showed is that those germinal centers where these B cells become more and more educated are super active even 15 weeks after the first dose of the mRNA vaccine. And that was kind of a surprise because normally a germinal center sort of quiets down within about four to six weeks. So to see it so active at 15 weeks, that's a really good sign that our memory B cells, the cells that produce antibodies and can remember the virus, they are going to stick around for a very long time, possibly for years, possibly a lifetime. How many people were involved in this study? And as you were talking about 15 weeks after, they were taking, obviously, samples in increments after they received their first and second doses of vaccine. But how many people uh, were in this study and, and what else? Uh, how else was it conducted? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that question because I think some people have seen the numbers from the study and jumped to the conclusion that it's too small to draw these conclusions. The study, they recruited 41 people, including eight who had been infected with the virus before. And from 14 of the people, they took samples from the lymph nodes multiple times at three weeks, four weeks, five, seven, 15 weeks after the first dose. So people have been looking at that 14 number and thinking, oh, but is this study too small? And it's not. And that's because 
Unlike a study that looks at a lot of people, but maybe looks at one time point, in this case, they had 14 people, but they looked at multiple time points, which is really hard to do, especially when you're extracting samples from the lymph nodes. That is not a trivial task. So some of the researchers I talked to were really blown away by the in-depth analysis from the study. And one scientist I talked to called it a heroic study because it's just not the kind of analysis that's easy to do. So even though it's 14 people, it actually gives us a lot of information yeah. about what's happening with these immune cells. I mean, getting a time commitment from anybody <laughs> is pretty hard to do. You know, one of the big caveats through all of this, though, is the variants, right? This is um, taking a look at what we have now. And if the coronavirus continues to mutate, which it will do, you know, who knows what happens then? And the virus is evolving, but we are too. So that's kind of the only little caveat with this, right? And it's a big one. It's a huge caveat because we know that the virus is evolving and we know that the virus has already evolved into forms that dodge the immune system a little bit. You know, they still respond to the vaccines and the vaccines all work against all of the variants we have so far. But against some of the variants like beta and delta, the vaccines are a tiny bit less effective. And if the virus continues to evolve and continues to become something that can really dodge the immune response that we have built up so far, then of course we'll need booster doses. But if that doesn't happen, if somehow we get lucky and the virus continues to look kind of like it does now, we may not need booster shots. As I mentioned before, this is uh, focusing on the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. They didn't look at Johnson & Johnson. But the good news that they kind of came through all of this, too, is that it seems like being vaccinated is almost better than the natural immunity. The, you know, the B cells kind of adapt to broader, a broader sense of the virus, more so than just getting the virus and, and fighting that off specifically. Is, is that also what, they, what came out through this? Yeah, that's right. So immunity from natural infection is actually pretty great and it lasts a really long time. And immunity from vaccination is also great and lasts a long time. But the best combination so far seems to be if somebody has recovered from COVID and then had a dose or two of the vaccine. But we also have some evidence that even though both kinds of immunity are good, the vaccines produce immune cells that you know do the sort of evolving that I was talking about. And they seem better able to recognize a much broader range of genetic forms of the virus. So they'll be better about protecting us from variants long term. Apoorva Mandavili, reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Looking to the economy, we're seeing people leave unemployment rolls faster in states that have canceled enhanced unemployment benefits than in those keeping them in place. Businesses are still having a tough time attracting workers and keeping them from quitting. And many suspected that the workers were still reluctant to go back into the workforce because of these extra benefits. For more on how people are looking for jobs now that unemployment benefits are ending, we'll speak to Eric Marath, labor and economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. These enhanced benefits are starting to roll off, and essentially they pay workers an additional $300 a week than they receive on state benefits. We're seeing the number of people on the rolls fall, even though they would still, in this case, still qualify for some level of state benefits. And we're not seeing that same decline happening in other states like New York or California, where the benefits are slated to be in place until September. So economists say that's a sign that people without the extra money are leaving the benefit rolls. And, and the logical reason why they would do that is because they're finding employment. You focused on Missouri a lot in your latest article. They cut off their payments on June 12th. There's other states that are doing, uh, did it on June 19th. And 
I think some more states are doing it by July 10th. But tell us about Missouri in particular and what they've been seeing with their labor force. Missouri was among the first states to act to curtail the unemployment benefits. It also has a fairly low unemployment rate. The unemployment rate there is closer to 4%. Uh, It's been below 5% since last fall. So that's well below the rest of the country. So that it's a place where the labor markets already was fairly tight. They didn't have the same level of restrictions as we saw in places like California and New York. So things have gotten, you know, not all the way back, but have gotten back there faster. And a lot of businesses say, hey, we can't find the workers we need. And many of them blame these unemployment benefits. And now they're sort of seeing a mixed uh, sense. Some, some work, um, businesses we talked to reported, you know, big upswing in applications. Others, including one in manufacturing, said, you know, it's still a really tight labor market out there and we're not getting the number of workers we hope for applying for these jobs. I forgot what Republican governor it was that said it when they were trying to start taking away these unemployment benefits. And they said, hey, if uh, you can go out to dinner, you can start going back to work. And, And it kind of rings true in a sense. You know, a lot of people still say, hey, people are worried about getting COVID-19. Childcare is a huge issue with returning to work. But some people are content getting these benefits and, and you know, don't really want to go back to that old job that they might have had. So they're looking for something new in a lot of different places. You also focused on a Midas Hospitality. They're a St. Louis-based hotel company. They have 44 locations. And they kind of went through this whole thing where they were doing job fairs. Nobody was showing up. And Little by little, as these unemployment benefits started going away, then they started seeing people come back. Tell us about that. A lot of businesses in the hospitality space, you know, they saw, you know, a decline in their workforce. They had to furlough people, lay people off. And now they're looking to bring people back. And that's a challenge, right? To bring people back online because, yes, some people are on unemployment benefits, but also some people have gotten out of the business altogether, right? There's a lot of job opportunities in other sectors, including places like construction and anything related to e-commerce and warehousing. And those jobs usually pay better than a hotel or restaurant job. So in some cases, people left the industry, even if they're still out there working. And, and you know, we know that people are, are guess that that may be true, that if you're willing to go out to eat, maybe you could, should be willing to take a job. But, you know, that's <laughs> right. not really the reality, right? If you go to a restaurant and you say, oh, man, this doesn't look like a, a safe place for my family to eat. I don't like how many people are close by me. You can walk out. If that's your place of employment, it's a little bit harder to quit, right? right. So <laughs> there's people that are taking their time. People maybe even waiting till a lot of people are pointing till September, right? Not only will benefits roll off, but schools, you know, hopefully most of the country could be reopened. And that allows people maybe to go back to work. So there's a number of factors at play for sure. And the competition is high for those uh, same pool of employees. You mentioned a manufacturing company. You know, they're just noticing it with big signs on other people's businesses saying, hey, big pay, big benefits, come over here. And and for a lot of these manufacturing companies, that applicant pool is, uh, you know, similar profile. So same people that they're shooting for. Right. I mean, we've heard and and seen studies showing that people have readjusted their perspective uh, during the pandemic. And part of it is just a chance to reevaluate. And part of it is these benefits that, you know, a lot of people I talk to really view sort of the minimum wage now as $15 an hour, even though in states like Missouri and elsewhere, it's much less than that officially. But they sort of say, if I'm not getting 15 an hour, you know, I'm going to keep looking because I know there's a lot of opportunities out there right now. How long do we expect this trend to last? Because, you know, one of the other things I mentioned also was, uh, you know, a lot of people quitting their jobs, uh, not wanting to go back to what they had before, looking for those other opportunities. 
how long are we going to expect this to last? I mean, these unemployment benefits, as you mentioned, in a lot of areas will fully expire in September. Is that the time we're going to see everybody kind of say, OK, now I need to go start looking for a job again? I think we're right now this summer kind of at the peak point of a post-pandemic labor shortage. And I think things will ease a bit as we get into the fall and people adjust to new routines and there's maybe not some of these disincentives. But I still think the ball is going to be in the workers' court. You know, we saw this 2019. Remember, the labor market was really tight. And I think it's getting back to that point very quickly. And that's going to mean that uh, employers are maybe need to raise wages or maybe need to adjust and say, you know, could this job be done remotely or could I be more flexible on my hours in order to attract the workers they need? Eric Marath, labor and economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Happy to join you. Finally, for this week, some hopeful news on the treatment of cancer. The same mRNA technology that's used in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines could be used to help treat cancer. Specifically, the hope is to make vaccines to prevent reoccurrences and fight off advanced tumors. Initially, this would help people with melanoma and kidney cancer, and there's currently a number of studies ongoing that hope to have some results in about a year or two. For more on how this mRNA technology is being used for more than COVID, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. There's been a tremendous amount of progress in the last decade or so in what's called immune therapy and turning the immune system against cancer. And one type of drug that's been very successful, particularly for melanoma and kidney cancer, is called a checkpoint blockade. Basically, cancer puts a break on the immune system, stops the immune system from fighting, fighting the tumor, and these drugs take that break off. And so what the mRNA technology can do is sort of add, add soldiers to add gas. Uh, it, it, once you've taken the, the pedal, uh, your, your foot off the brake, these mRNAs can add gas by adding immune soldiers, by teaching the immune system to go after, after the cancer. You know, when we're getting the stories about the COVID vaccines, it was all about finding, identifying those spike proteins and then, and then getting the vaccine to attack those proteins right there, those spike proteins. Exactly. So cancer is a little more challenging is because the body right. recognizes cancer cells as part of itself leaves them alone. So you need to get a biopsy of the tumor, identify what's different, and then you can tailor the vaccine to that. Exactly. And that's been a huge challenge in research for decades. They've been trying for cancer vaccines, but they haven't found the exact right proteins to go after that are only on cancer cells. So one of the reasons that like chemotherapy is so destructive is it kills healthy cells along with, with cancerous ones. And so what this mRNA technology has the promise to do is to target specifically the cancer cells and, and leave the healthy ones alone. Tell me a little bit about Bobby Fentress, who you profiled yes. in your article, who is going through some of this. And it was going through it this past year throughout the pandemic. He was able to get one of these vaccine trials and, you know, hopefully treat his his cancer. The thing is, this is going to take some years still since until we get to see some results. But tell us about Bobby and his story. Exactly. Um, and so Bobby is a fantastic guy, lives in Tennessee. He uh, runs a painting contracting business. And he had a little bump on his left middle finger, thought it was a wart, went to get it taken care of eventually after his wife nagged him for a while. Um, And he was diagnosed with melanoma. And so they actually amputated most of his middle finger on his left hand. And 
where this mRNA technology is supposed to be, is hope, hoped to be the, the most effective, is for people like this. So they, they took out the main tumor, but there might be some cells circulating in Bobby's body that could come back and, and form more tumors in the future. It's called a metastasis, metastasized. And so it's hoped that by giving him this mRNA technology, that it can help turn the immune system against tumor cells and prevent a recurrence. As I mentioned, kind of with the way they make the vaccine, it they have to kind of tailor make these to each individual person. And that's what he got in his vaccine. But how, how many people have, have been involved with some of these trials so far? Right. It's sort of mind blowing the idea of having literally a personalized medication tailored to your specific cancer and the, the mutations in it. So far, Moderna, which is one of the companies involved, a name you might recognize from the COVID fight, right. they've tested this in about 100 people so far. So it's still quite early days, but there's a lot of a lot of promise. There's also an, another area that they're testing, which would be in advanced tumors where they have some consistent mutations. So maybe melanoma has five or 10 mutations that are common among a lot of people with melanoma. And so they could do like an off-the-shelf version uh, where they could pre-make it and just give it to you or give you a combination of X, Y, and Z version to go after mutations that you have in your in your tumors. Yeah, there's a lot of familiar names in all of this. Moderna, BioNTech right. uh, is working on some stuff. Exactly. Uh, even the uh, uh, antibody drug Regeneron, which was used with COVID too, was uh, all kind of rolled up into these overall treatments that are going. So, uh, I mean, a lot of the same people that had a lot of success with the COVID-19 vaccine are also involved here. Actually, it's, it's in a way, it's the reverse. So all of these companies were working in cancer. They happened to be doing some vaccine work also, at least Moderna was, but their main focus was in cancer because that's where there's a lot of money in, in, in the drug industry. And then COVID came along and they saw it as a way to prove out their technology because none of the none of these products had make it, had made it to market yet. So in a way, it was this cancer work uh, that was moving forward that helped us push the the mRNA vaccines through so quickly. What are some of the markers of success that people are looking for when they go through this? Because uh, they say that it has to boost the long term survival rate for it to mean right. anything. Right. So somebody like Bobby Fentress, who we said had had melanoma had a high chance of recurrence, 50% chance of recurrence. And when it does recur in a case like that, the outcomes are not good. The long-term survival is not good. So basically, they have to wait a couple of years and hope that that Bobby stays healthy and and his cancer doesn't recur. And they need to do that with enough people to be confident that that it's really the, uh, the drug that's making the difference. We were able to prove that we could ramp up production of mRNA vaccines you know, we were able to prove that they worked as well, but there's a lot of uh, ties between the pandemic and uh, making these vaccines for cancer. Right. So um, prior to this, Moderna, for instance, had a had a factory in suburban Boston and they were making, you know, doses of, of, of this cancer vaccine, um, but not at a huge scale. And and if, if it was successful, they'd have to ramp up to treat people with cancer. Uh, but now they've ramped up so much to treat COVID that they understand now how to mass produce these mRNAs at, at just unbelievable scales that will be useful, that will save a lot of time uh, if these cancer vaccines prove effective. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. We'll be right back.